The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Morning, everyone. Well, it is hard to believe this is the uh, penultimate uh, session together this morning. And uh, it was really good to... uh, be present last night to hear Hans Peter. If you missed yesterday evening, you missed a real treat, a tremendous time in the Word of God. I think John, uh, the camp director, was checking up on my attendance, though. Uh, Crept in slightly late at the back after dropping my children off, but I was there. So please pass that on to John if you see him. We have been considering the calling of the church this week, and uh, as a very brief recap, on Sunday we looked at the hope of the church, Christ, and faithfulness to his word, then we considered the nature and origin of the church in history, then we looked at the uh, calling of the church as a called out people of God. And then the sent church, the apostolos, the sent people of God. And yesterday we considered the pastoral calling of the church as we have been reflecting on the offices in Ephesians 4 on some of the aspects of God's calling. Uh, We considered there yesterday both the pastoral and teaching elements in the mandate given to the church. With only two sessions left now, I want to today talk about the church and our conflict, the church and our conflict. What is the nature of the conflict which the church faces? We've talked about us being called out and sent, and the terms in which we're being sent as God's ambassadors, as the people of the kingdom. What is the nature of the conflict and the struggle we face? That's our question for this morning. So before we begin, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us this week. In and through the person of the Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the one who leads us into all truth. Open our eyes that we will behold wondrous things out of your word. Teach us and strengthen us and equip us to be the people you're calling us to be. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 28, 1 Samuel chapter 28, and we're going to read verse 3 through 19, and then we're going to go across to Ephesians 6. So, 1 Samuel 28, 3 through 19, and then we're going to turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. Now, Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. 
And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, in fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes, and he went, and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Please conduct a seance for me, and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. Then the woman said to him, Look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Who shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What did you see? The woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. Now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed. For the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me, and does not answer me any more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you, that you may reveal to me what I should do. Then Samuel said, So why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Then turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, and we will just read a few verses, verses 10 through 20. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation 
and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that it may that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So we've been considering the calling of the church, and I want to focus this morning on what confronts the church in our calling, the nature of our conflict. In the text we have just read in Samuel, the book of Samuel, God will not answer Saul. Now, my intention this morning is not to do a line-by-line exposition of the nature of that passage. There are a number of interesting things in it, but to merely highlight a couple of important and salient features. Saul, in this account, in fact, throughout the book of Samuel, has already heard from God. God has already told Saul what he is to do, how he is to live, how he was to deal with the king of Amalek, and so forth, and he didn't pay any attention. So Saul, being troubled by the fact that God is not answering him, is not in fact now looking for instruction from God. He doesn't want God's instruction so that he should know what he should do and how he should live. He's already lived in disobedience. That's what Samuel tells him. Why God permitted Samuel to be called up and to speak to Saul is God's business. But Samuel reminded him, God is against you. You've you've disobeyed the voice of God. What Saul wants now to know is what will happen. He doesn't want to know what God is asking of him. He wants to know what will happen. That's why he's quite ready to, having not heard from God, to go and ask a spiritist, a medium, to conduct a seance. He wants to know the future. He's confronted with the armies of the Philistines, or the Philistines, as we say in England, And he wants to know what is going to happen to his army and to Israel. The basic idea is that access to this hidden knowledge will grant him some power or control over his circumstances. Now, since the fall of humankind, one of the basic lusts of man has been his search for power, for autonomous power. That is, man as a law unto himself, as a a source of power independent from God, because the basic drive of man outside of Christ is to be his own God. Genesis 3.15, you will be as gods, knowing good from evil. There are only two possible sources of power, of knowledge, and of law in the world. And only one of those sources is non-destructive and non-disintegrating. Power in life 
knowledge and law either comes from above or it comes from below. That's a basic antithesis, very simple, unusual for the morning sessions, I know. It either comes from above or from below. Power, knowledge, and law. Now, in rebellion against God, man wants to seek power from below. He wants access to knowledge so that he might somehow control his life and his circumstances. It's been true from Genesis 3.15. Modern philosophy has given us, that is, it has presented us with, and our young people with, a view of life that we are in a meaningless universe of blind chance, evolving energies and forces. Modern psychology, through Freud, tells us that these forces, the key understanding life and human psychology and power is in the unconscious, in the primal horde. There is an unconscious pass out of the chaos, and you can only understand human psychology in terms of this unconscious past. With Darwinism, the notion of the primitive and this mythical animal past for man uh, reintroduced into Western thought, and it was a reintroduction, the idea of power and vitality coming from below. And as a consequence, in the modern world, the perverse, the lawless, the criminal, the chaotic, and critically, the occult have been identified with true power and freedom, especially in the arts, interestingly enough. In fact, the, one of the most prominent uh, sociologists of the last century, Emil Durkheim, suggested that the criminal is an evolutionary pioneer. An evolutionary pioneer. That is, the ethics of the criminal are, is pointing the way to the morality of the future. So you mustn't overly restrain the criminal. There are some... Uh, negative social consequences that may have to be shepherded in some way. But the criminal is an evolutionary pioneer pointing the way to the ethics of the future. I was debating a psychologist some months ago. The debate is available on the book table, actually. It's called The Great Debate. It wasn't that great, actually. <clears throat> it was <laughs> it's a good title. <clears throat> in which I pressed on this point of ethics and morality about an objective standard for ethics, and she readily admitted that in the future people may eat their neighbor as opposed to love their neighbor, since there are no moral moorings or ethical standards that can be seen as absolute. Ethics are evolving, and they may be very different in 50 years' time. Most people with any common sense in the audience at that point had, didn't have uh, ears left to hear anything else she had to say. Having denied power from above, from God, in the modern world, it is sought from below, in the psychoanalytic, in the artistic, and even in the political. Consider the 
great political leaders of the 20th century. Stalin, Lenin, Hitler, Mussolini, and so forth, many of them had deep connections with the occult. All of them were seeking power from below. The new obsession we have today in popular culture is with the occult, with magic, with Satanism, with witchcraft, and it has developed on all fronts. If you walk into Blockbuster in your local uh, video store, in your local community, you will find that the dominant theme of modern entertainment is spiritism and occultism. Most of the favorite television series are about vampires or about uh, uh, people with uh, extrasensory perceptions or mediums or spiritists and so forth. It is quite logical that our time should be obsessed with the occult given what we believe about chaos and the past and about human nature. If man is his own god, to determine all things for himself and can determine all things for himself and govern all things for himself. Faith is unnecessary. He doesn't need God. He doesn't need trust. He can walk by sight, not by faith. Man wants everything on his own terms, and if he's to believe in God or anything about God, he wants proof on those terms, on his terms. Power, then, is sought from below. Knowledge is sought from below, be it the magical or the political. Some people think that the secret resides in nature, others in the stars, others say it's in the inner self, others looking for it in dark forces or the collective spirit or the primal chaos. And the reality is, in our time, until that faith is shattered, which actually has its root in evolutionism, as we'll see in a moment, we will continue to see the proliferation of violence and of criminality and so forth. We see as well in the entertainment industry increasingly the celebration of the pointless, mindless, and gratuitousness in brutality. Two expressions of that uh, today in our culture are the increasingly violent character of the things which people will entertain themselves. For example, uh, not only women now fighting in the ring, but men shutting themselves in cages, tearing each other to pieces, cage fighting and so forth. This is now popular entertainment on cable TV. You know, when uh, a century and a half ago, two centuries ago, when men had a very serious conflict, they would go and duel with pistols or with a sword, and there were rules. There were actually rules which governed even a serious uh, conflict like that. Now we think it's entertainment for two men to get into a ring with each other with no rules, just battering the life out of each other. And we say that's entertainment. Another form of entertainment today is hardcore pornography, the seventh largest industry in North America, characterized by violence. Now, both of these things are a revival of Roman paganism. People used to be able to go and watch such live explicit shows 
in the theater in ancient Rome, and then they would head off down to the amphitheater to watch men kill each other in the ring. These things proliferate, all forms of violence proliferate, where occultism has a revival. Power is from below, knowledge is from below. What is the nature of it? Well, today God has given us, in his word, a complete and finished revelation. Christ has been revealed into history. He has affirmed his word. He's led us into all truth through his word and has given us direction for life. He's told us what he requires. Many people today, though, even some who profess Christ, don't actually want really to know what God requires so that we can hear and obey. We're looking for this source of knowledge or insight outside of God. Now, when we speak of magic and the occult, most people still think in terms of its primitive forms. Most of us will think of the primitive forms of witchcraft, such as voodoo and medicine men and so on and so forth. But witchcraft is much more than the paraphernalia of medicine men because its root and the source of all occultic practice is the basic Attempt the basic idea of control. Control outside of God. It's rebellion against God. Hence, some people want to look at their fortune cookies or read what Mystic Meg says in the back of the paper or whatever, or check out their horoscope. Others, especially young people, are interested in spiritism and Ouija boards and table raising and palm reading and so on and so forth. And you can come on to Danforth Avenue where our church is and go and visit your local psychic just down the road or have your palm read in the shop next door and so forth. This is common fare now. Control over our circumstances. People think if they can have some insight, if there is a key, a secret key, that they will somehow to be able to overcome and control their lives an attempt to play God. It's because we don't want to submit to God's meaning in the universe as the creator and sustainer and governor. We want to be the new source of predestination. We want to define meaning and truth for ourselves. Man's word has to become omnipotent, all-powerful. The problem is, of course, when we try and do this, whenever we try and do this, because we are simply a subject in God's universe, only God has the absolute context, we leave ourselves simply imprisoned in our own minds and actually at the mercy of all kinds of demonic power. Modern philosophy, of course, has a very long history, but in more recent times, the German philosopher Hegel said that the rational is the real. The rational is the real. This has informed all modern politics and all modern thought. What did he mean by that? Well, there was another philosopher before him called Kant, Immanuel Kant, who had said that there are these two realms. There's the noumenal realm, that is the, the, the reality as it really is. He says we can't know that. And then there's the phenomenal realm, which is the world of my experience. 
and the sense realm. He says that's all we can know. And we can struggle to know things in this realm, but, the, but reality as it really is, he says, we cannot know. Well, Hegel comes along and he says, well, we can't tolerate that. We've got to know what the really real is. So he said, the rational is the real. World spirit, world geist. As in the historical process, the, in a sense, a form of pantheism, this world spirit evolving through the historical process, coming to its apex in human thought, what man thinks is that which is real. And modern existentialism, which is simply an extension of that, which is the mood of our time in the arts, in literature, in entertainment, from Seinfeld to the philosophy classroom, is that men and women can define for themselves that which is truly real. So what do we entertain ourselves with today? Well, reality TV, which is total unreality. But it is amazing that some people will come home from work and sit on the couch to watch other people sitting on the couch <laughs> and call that entertainment. Cyber reality as well, in terms of modern technology, is the fact that people start to develop and are developing for themselves increasingly fantasy worlds. New names, new careers, new identities in the cyber world. A thousand Facebook friends, and nobody turns up to your actual party. The, the basic idea is that if you and I can create reality, then we, of course, can control it. If you can create your own world, then you can control your own world. And believe me, the technologists actually believe that this is coming. I was watching a series of lectures recently from the world's leading technologists, what they believe is going to happen in the next few years. They talk about this, uh, this curve of an acceleration curve uh, of development and of progress. And their conviction is that the way technology is presently moving, that now you need a keyboard and, and, a, and a, a docking station, a computer to get into cyberspace, to get onto the internet. They're suggesting that nanotechnology will enable us within the next 20 years to inject very small uh, robots into our bloodstream that will remain there and that you will literally be able to access through your visual cortex directly the internet. So you'll just be able to plug in without any sort, you'll be able to live literally in, a, in the cyber realm directly. They're working on this. In Oxford, they are actually working on, I'm told by a friend of mine who's a professor at Oxford, they are working on trying to put elements of the human and the machine, the technological, together. That's not Star Trek. It's very real in what they're trying to do. Perverted science reasons as follows. If we can govern all genes, clone what we want, defeat death, remake ourselves with technology, we will have total power total control. We can replace God with the predestination of man. Now this is magic. The basic idea is the same. The laws of magic are actually very interesting. The first is like attracts like. Like 
attracts like. So people say things like this, and you can read it on your uh, airport bookshelves. Hold a good thought. Think rich. Think positive. The power of positive thinking. Now you can find this in Christian books, ostensibly Christian books. This is the kind of material that's filling people's minds today. Visualize this. Confess that. Like will attract like. The second law is the law of contagion. Contagion. This is basic to all fertility cults. This is relevant, by the way, this morning. I will get to my point in a moment. Uh, fertility cults. The example the, in, in uh, fertility, uh, various fertility cults is the maypole dance, which is then followed by sexual activity in the fields. The belief is that it will then stimulate the crops to grow. This is a common practice still in Asia, in parts of Africa, and even in parts of Europe. It's an act of regeneration, an act of chaos and fertility will help stimulate the crops. Contagion. And these two rest on a more basic law, the law of correspondences, which is behind every form of occultism, which is the idea that everything in the world is interrelated, everything is interlocking, everything is part of everything else. They are basically part of one another so that everything corresponds to everything else and there are similarities basic because of the intensely interrelated character of all things. That's the idea of voodoo. You make a doll that has a similarity, a correspondence to somebody, and then they stick pins in it. The law of correspondences. Hypocrisy is actually a form of magic. Because hypocrisy is a pretense to be the real thing in order to get the power of the real thing. The idea then that word and reality are intensely linked is central to this idea of correspondence. Of course, we believe that the word and reality are intensely linked, but it's not our word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was God. He was with God and he was God. He was with God in the beginning. Think about it for a minute. What's the most common throwaway expression that people have? They innocently use connecting word and reality. What's the magic word? What's the magic word? And today in the church, there are occultic movements that say that I can speak the word I can govern a realm above the realm of faith with the force of faith and thereby control my reality, my health, my wealth, my prosperity, everything. God himself must come into line with my confession, my thought. And as Hans rightly pointed out last night, you have no such rights before God and you certainly cannot control God with your demands. Whatever's in your head will become a reality. Since all is one then, since all is interrelated, opposites are actually one. So you'll often find today that opposition to various things, especially moral perversions, are 
often fought in terms of the assumption that opposites are one. So if you are opposed to homosexuality, you are in fact a latent homosexual. If you're against uh, uh, abortion, actually, secretly, you want to kill. And on and on. Resting, actually, under all of this is the doctrine of evolution, both pagan and modern. Because evolution says that all things came out of a primeval chaos and evolved out of the same stuff. I think I mentioned on the first night, totemism. All being is one. There are different expressions of that being. There is an interrelationship between all living things. They have a common ancestor. From the goo through the zoo to you. It's all interrelated. What that means is that all differences are superficial or even illusory. So if you want to understand the man in modern psychology, you need to understand the child. If you want to understand the child, you need to understand the proto-hominid. To understand the proto-hominid, you need to understand the lower creature. And to understand even the fish or the salamander, you, you need to go back to the slime. And behind the slime is the void. Do you see? Everything interrelated. Everything connected in some way. That's why you've got movements today within environmentalism where they're sort of weeping and holding funeral services for plants and trees and so forth. The basic idea of this Gaia, this life, this earth life. Mother Earth. The doctrine of creation, the doctrine of God, shatters magic. Because it tells us that God created all things distinct from himself. That he called creation into being and he structured and he ordered everything and that there are real, not illusory, distinctions between things. So things reproduced after their kind. And it after its kind and this after its kind and this after its kind. Distinctions, real, not illusory distinctions. And that is what breaks the power, finally, of occultism and magic, is the word of God. In fact, this is true in history. Christianity, introduced into the ancient pagan world, broke the politico-magical worldview of paganism. And thus arose modern science. Now, this is recognized by... Uh, the majority of honest historians. Go and read Rodney Stark's book, the, uh, the Victory of Reason, for example. He plots and shows how it was the Christian faith that gave birth to modern science because it was no longer held that chaos and interrelationships were at the basis of all reality and hence alchemy and magic, but rather God, his word, his law, and basic distinctions so that you can then go and do science. Because there are real distinctions, there is real law, there's real rationality, there's real order and structure. It's no surprise that with the rise of Darwinism, we have had the rise of occultism. In fact, the co-discoverer of 
the idea of a positive function for natural selection, it had already been said by creation scientists like Edward Blythe that there was natural selection which had a culling effect on populations. Darwin simply said, no, it creates things. But Wallace, who was the co-discoverer who presented at the Royal Society at the same time as Darwin, became Britain's leading occultist and leading spiritist. Creation shuts the door on occultism since God creates all things with a specific purpose. We have today as well the ethics of occultism, which are basically do what you will. Do what you will. Law declares the order of the universe and therefore is always theological. But since in occultism and humanism all things are one, ethics are a matter of taste. If there is no power and law and knowledge from above, from God, the dunamis of God in terms of his word and his grace and his Holy Spirit, man still needs power. And he still needs a source of law and a source of knowledge. And therefore he goes to it, looks for it from below, which only brings deception, disintegration, chaos, and death. Hence, drugs, actually, and occultism have often gone together, both in the modern perspective today and in the ancient perspective or the primitive perspective. The vision quests of the Native Americans, for example, are drug-induced. When there is a disintegration in culture, people are looking for somehow some out-of-reality experience. And of course, the mind-altering effect of drugs is what many people today are looking for to find some source of vitality and power. Now, Saul would not hear God's word as it was commanded him. He wouldn't hear it. So God's judgment came on him, and Scripture makes abundantly clear that the power... And the governance of all things belongs to God. He speaks the predestinating word and his providence governs all things. I am in his hands. I cannot manipulate my way to power. What did Jesus say? Can you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Some people think they can anxiously worry their way to transformation. It doesn't change a thing, does it? Worry just robs you of tomorrow, and it doesn't change today. Actually, it robs you of today, and it doesn't change tomorrow as well. You can't manipulate your way to power in any way, shape, or form. Our only freedom and power is in submission to God. Hans talked about it in a different way last night in terms of our right to be the children of God and submit to Him. That's our only right. You cannot manipulate your way to power. Beyond the governance of God, we are completely in His hands. Let me prove that to you, in case there are a few doubters. Job. Job 12. Job chapter 12. I want to read just a few verses. From Job 12. You can just listen or you can turn there. It doesn't matter. Job 12, I'm reading from verse 9 through 10 and then 14 through 25. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? 
In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? Does not the ear test words and the mouth taste its food? Wisdom is with aged men and with length of days understanding. With him are wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. If he breaks a thing down, it cannot be rebuilt. If he imprisons a man, there can be no release. If he withholds waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the earth. With him are strength and prudence. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away plundered and so forth and makes fools of judges. He loosens the bonds of kings. He leads princes away. He deprives the trusted ones of speech and so forth. Now, Job, at the very end of the book of Job, God gives Job a questionnaire in answer to his questions. He doesn't actually tell Job why he's allowed his suffering or his difficulties. He doesn't actually say to Job, here's the reason I allowed, I permitted Satan to test you. He just says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth. Where were you? And then God asks him whether he knows the way to the home of light, whether he knows what's in the depths. You know, Job's response is he says, I have uttered things too wonderful for me. I, I repent in dust and ashes. The word of God makes abundantly clear that God is completely in control. In Acts 17, Paul tells us that the boundaries, the habitations, the limits of the nations have been prescribed by God, that he might seek and reach out for God, even though he is not far from each one of us. Even with respect to our salvation, Jesus says, no man can come to me unless my heavenly Father draws him. That's the sovereignty and the providence of God over all things. The prophets tell us consistently that he brings up nations and pulls down princes. Ephesians 6 then tells us, as we draw this to a conclusion, that behind all of this occultism is our adversary, the devil. His false knowledge, his deceptive arguments, his disintegrating power, Paul speaks of it in 2 Corinthians 10. And we, are, we have been armed as God's people. We've not been left unarmed, but we've been armed as God's people to deal with the attacks of the enemy. Faith, righteousness, salvation, truth, the gospel of peace, the word of God, so that we are strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Now the word Satan literally means adversary. In 1 Peter 5, 8, he is identified as our adversary. But even our adversary can only operate with the permission of God. Some Christians are, want to think that the devil is some kind of ultimate and opposite power. And he's running the world and he's controlling the world and so on and so forth as though he's somehow omnipresent and all-powerful. Well, that's not the biblical picture. You read the book of Job, it's clear that Satan has to ask permission to test Job. In fact, we have a very interesting New Testament instance of this. Satan has asked permission to sift Peter like wheat, Jesus says. 
Satan has asked that he may sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that we will not be, we cannot be tempted beyond what we can bear or without a way of escape, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Satan is not all-powerful. He's not omnipresent. He is an adversary. He is seeking to undermine the saving and sanctifying work of God. But all he has are lies. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. And Jesus says he was a liar from the beginning. Everything he says and does is deceptive, is disintegrating, and is false. And since he can only operate in terms of the sovereignty and providence of God, although we must respect the powers, the scripture is clear about that. Going from memory, I think it's in Jude where we are told that uh, even Michael the archangel did not make a frivolous charge against Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you, over the dispute, I think, about Moses' uh, body. Is that, is that heresy or is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. So whilst we must respect these powers, we are not to be fascinated with them. The scripture says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And actually, Ephesians 1 says, it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the powers and the authorities both those in the heavens and those in the earth, through the church in this age and in the age to come. So scripture actually portrays Satan as occultic power. It, of course, Satan was right there at the beginning, wasn't he tempting our first parents? Has God said, you, will be as, you won't surely die, no, you will be as gods, knowing or defining for yourself good from evil. Scripture actually depicts Satan as a deposed foe, deposed from his seat of power, limited, and his status as one as, and as simply one who is trying to deceive and whose power has been seriously limited now by our Lord. His head has been bruised. Now, in reaction to the appearance of Christ, what do we see? We see a massive outburst of satanic activity. I mean, how many demon possessions can you think of in the Old Testament? Maybe Saul was being oppressed by the devil. Remember when David played the harp? Maybe there was something there. But when Jesus arrives on the scene, you've got demons crying out all over the place. And what are they saying? Have you come to torment us before our time? We know who you are, son of the living God. Jesus told them to be silent. He's not interested in the uh, declarations of demons about his identity. But their expectation was that Christ had come to cast them into the abyss. Jesus himself interpreted his own ministry as the plundering of Satan's house in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28 through 29. He talks about the strong man fully armed, guarding his own house, but when stronger than he comes, he overcomes him and he takes the spoil. His overthrow is described in Luke 10, 18. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And by the way, that wasn't some uh, deep time historical reference to the fall in the past. It was to do with the kingdom coming now. The apostles were going out. They were preaching the gospel. They were seeing demons coming out of people. They were seeing the sick being healed. And Jesus says, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. 
that your names are written in heaven. I saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. This means, friends, that as we consider the calling of the church together, are being called out and sent out into the world, Satan cannot thwart the calling of the church. Ephesians 1 tells us, Christ, who is head over all things and has authority over all things, has been given to the church. He cannot prevent the Great Commission being accomplished. He is not alive and well on planet Earth, contra Hal Lindsay. He is in serious trouble. He has been stripped, we're told, of his authority. The scripture says that at the cross, God was making an open spectacle of principalities and powers, triumphing over them. Jesus said it was a mark that the kingdom of God was amongst them. Remember they said to him, he casts out demons by Beelzebub. Well, how can a kingdom stand if it's divided against itself, says Jesus? No. I cast out demons because the kingdom of God is amongst you. The kingdom of God is here. Christ, as one with all authority in heaven and earth, sends us out with power and authority over the wicked one. Some of you look at me as though you're doubting. We are told explicitly that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, and that the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to all the powers through the church, and his calling means in his armor that we are called to victory. In Acts chapter 16, Paul does not fail to cast out the demon from the woman who is wandering behind him, constantly irritating him, saying, this is Paul, he's the son of the, he is the servant of the Most High God. Do you remember? Does Paul say, oh no, the devil is in charge, I can't deal with this problem? The Lord teaches us clearly his power over all occult power in Matthew 12. The first advent was the coming of and a declaration of the inauguration of his kingdom. Now, I know that Satan is not totally immobilized. He's still around, although I doubt that either I or you are important enough for his personal attention, but he's still out there. He goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. In other words, there's the people on the edge. If you watch Planet Earth and nature programs, if you've got the stomach for it, you'll see that what the lion does, what these prowling animals do, is they wait to pick off a weak one on the edge. Well, that's what Scripture says Satan is trying to do. But his unrestricted power to deceive the nations has been utterly destroyed by the gospel. Christ has bruised his head. Why is it that the church is exploding in China, in Africa, in Latin America? You see, with the advent of Christ, the stone uncut by human hands, the book of Daniel smashes the statue of man and his empires. The gospel of the kingdom is being proclaimed. That's why Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This missionary door has been opened to the nations now that no man can shut. That's why Paul can say in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. 
You know, we Canadians used to believe that because we have Psalm 72 on the coat of arms of our country. He shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. I alluded to the ministry of Gerhard Grauter the other day. The, the full story, which we'll have to wait for another time, was that this man in the 14th century, in the midst of the decline and decay of the church, the Black Death wiping out a quarter of the world's population, terrible problems all around, the doomsdayers were everywhere, the doomsayers. And we, we have doomsayers filling the church today. All is disaster. It's all coming to an end. Do you know how many times Christians have expected the end? How many times it's been pro uh, expected by Martin Luther was expecting it? People at the beginning of the 20th century with the rise of the Third Reich were expecting... People have been expecting it and talking about it for centuries. The question is, friends, do we today have a long-term vision for the work of the kingdom of God? Grauter did. And in the midst of all of this, he said, right, what we're going to do is we're going to translate the Bible into the vernacular and we're going to start Christian schools and we're going to pray that God does his work. And yes, he was called something of a failure. Within 150 years, I think I said the other day, Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, Busser were all being educated in his schools. How do you know that what you do today isn't for 150 years from now? Now, I grew up in the context, I understand, I grew up in a context in terms of an eschatological teaching that expected I wouldn't even be here now. How do you know that? Do you govern the future? Do you know the future? No, of course you don't. No man knows the day or the hour. Our responsibility now is to be getting on with the work of the kingdom. Because what if there is another 500 years of human history still to come? And God wants you to establish this or that for your children's children. The long-range view. When, the, when our forebears built their cathedrals, most of them didn't see them finished. They took so many years to build a cathedral that you didn't see it finished. If you were working on the floor mosaic, you never saw people finally come and worship in it. No, you had to have a long-range view, but we live in an instant culture. And sometimes we're so selfish that we think, well, the coming of the Lord has to be in my generation. And then we can use it as an excuse for not confronting the enemy in our time and his false knowledge and his occult attempt to seek power and knowledge and law from below. We have the power and the key given to us in Jesus Christ who holds the keys of death and hell. And I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Right now at Westminster Chapel we are praying about the establishment of a Christian school in downtown Toronto ourselves. We've only been existing as a church for 20 months, but we're now praying about what God wants us to do with respect to educating kids in the downtown core, as well as our own children. Yes, Satan's thrashing around, frantically seeking to do what he can, but we have been endued with power from on high. And this power can turn up at the most surprising moments. 
About a year and a half ago, I was doing this debate at the University of Ontario, and uh, the crowd, there's about 3,000 people in the crowd, the crowd was, seemed hostile at first, there was a lot of jeering going on, there was quite a bit of shouting, uh, that often happens in a 65% non-Christian crowd. And my, one of my colleagues was, uh, stood at the back, and there was a prayer meeting going on during the debate, and slowly but surely, the whole atmosphere of that gymnasium changed. To the point where at the closing, I was able to simply preach the gospel to the audience. The atheist closed in 40 seconds. And when I finished preaching the gospel at the end, many stood in applause of the gospel. Now that wasn't me. That had nothing to do with me. That had everything to do with the power of God and his work in the lives of people. I went back to the university a year later to speak at a small Christian uh, fellowship meeting and a young man giving his testimony at the beginning of the meeting, who I'd never met, had given his heart to Christ at the debate. Jesus says, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is what Paul says in Ephesians. We have the hope of his calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe according to the working of his great might. The calling of the church cannot be thwarted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today that despite the efforts of the world, of the flesh and of the devil, despite the different aspects of assault upon our lives and upon your church, we thank you that Jesus has come and overcome the strong man and plundered his house and has called out his people and his church to be overcomers. We are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. We thank you, Lord, that despite the rise of all of these things in our time, of occultism, of magic, and of witchcraft, and of a perverted science, we thank you that you reign and that you rule, and that you shall rule the nations with a rod of iron, and that you call upon the nations to kiss the sun. We thank you that you have promised to build your church and that you have given us the armor of God, of salvation, righteousness, truth, the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, the gospel of peace. We thank you that as we go out in your name and in your power, you have promised us victory. Whether it be in 20 years or 100 years or 500 years, we thank you that your kingdom is still coming in and through your people. We give you thanks for your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives with you and reigns with you, world without end. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.